The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear, superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Hot on the heels of getting a go-ahead from a couple of federal organizations, the Delta Tunnels plan has been hit with the first of what promises to be several lawsuits to halt that big dig beneath the Sacramento River. We have the details. What lessons did California's farmers learn from our recent five-year drought? We find out. The Sacramento processing tomato crop was hit hard by the recent heat wave, and we have those numbers. And profiles of several farming families of the Cape Valley. It's all in a new book. Plus, crop reports and pest updates. All on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. coalition of environmental and fishing groups filed the first of what are expected to be many lawsuits challenging Governor Jerry Brown's $17 billion plan to build two massive water tunnels through the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. The Sacramento Bee reports that the suits filed in U.S. District Court in San Francisco came four days after two federal agencies said the controversial project can coexist with endangered Delta fish. The Golden Gate Salmon Association, the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Defenders of Wildlife, and the Bay Institute allege the findings by the agencies violate the U.S. Endangered Species Act. If you're flying into Sacramento, you might look down and see what looks like the biggest lawn in California. Well, actually, it's California's rice. And grower Mike Daddow in Sutter County says the late June, early July progress on this year's Sacramento Valley rice crop is actually looking pretty good. Uh, right now, it's it's late June. We've uh, had a, a late spring. We had uh, probably a rushed uh, planting, but we did have a rush planting. Our seedbed prep probably wasn't as great as we'd like to have it. But things have turned out well. Uh, we've had uh, some warm weather last week uh, and uh, the, the plants have branched out quite a bit and filled up the spaces between the plants and as you can see it looks like a like a nice lawn out there right now. There's a few weeds coming up but that's normal. Uh, we'll do some control on that and then from there it'll be pretty much smooth sailing till harvest and it looks like a pretty decent crop. Uh, it won't be a gangbuster but it'll be a, a decent crop. California is the nation's leading grower of medium grain and short grain rice. The long-term drought in California is now a memory to many, thanks to the heavy precipitations from this past winter. But how exactly did row and tree crop producers in the Golden State deal with the dryness and its potential impacts? Agriculture Department economist Steve Willander first puts in perspective where, by and large, California's farm irrigation water comes from. Most of the agricultural production is irrigated. A very large share of that is irrigated by surface water, and that comes from these big projects, federal and state projects that store and transport the water through canals and get it to the farms. However, a look at the percentages of water delivery from the Central Valley's two major systems during drought years, both historically and recently, reveal... In the 91-92 drought, you had about a 40% reduction in both years in the amount of surface water delivered to agriculture from these systems. In the recent drought, in the two most severe years, 2014 and 2015, that was about a 50 to 60% reduction in surface water delivered. Yet in those same years, shocks in both crop price or crop yield were not dramatic. Willander says the reason was groundwater. In California, a lot of farms, not all, but a lot of farms have the ability to substitute between groundwater and surface water. One question that may be the future of groundwater availability in California. 
Wallander says surveys show overall there is a tremendous amount of water available in California aquifers, although this varies by specific area or location. We're realizing there's a lot of areas with well under 500 feet of water available where overdraft is a much more near-term concern. And then there's other areas with more than 3,000 feet of water available. And while it's going to get expensive for them to pump it down that far, they have a little more flexibility in terms of their long-range planning. So what about California farmer response to the most recent drought? Well, Anders says field crop producers tended to cut back on planted acreage. In the recent drought, the rice acres planted, the corn, cotton, and wheat sort of jumped together. We see declines in acreage in response to the drought. However, tree nut orchard and vineyard acreage not only remained constant, but in some cases grew during the recent drought. Willander says this is an example of regional differences when it comes to water supply. Those orchards, for the most part, tend to be going in in places that have more secure groundwater and more secure surface water rights. So that local water scarcity measure matters a lot. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. U.S. farmers and ranchers, one of the strongest voting blocks for President Trump, are at a disadvantage because Agricultural Secretary Sonny Perdue is running the USDA by himself. That's according to a report by the successful farming website. 17 powerhouse farm groups sent a letter to the president. It was one of the first expressions of discontent with the administration from the politically conservative farm sector. The letter stated that it's impossible to pilot such a large and complex agency without a team of powerful and talented people at the helm. The letter urged the president and his staff to move swiftly in filling out the rest of Secretary Purdue's team. But Purdue says it's going to be fall before any Trump administration appointees join him at USDA headquarters. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt announced his agency has begun the process of rescinding the Obama-era Waters of the U.S. rule. AFBF Senior Director of Regulatory Relations Don Parrish credits grassroots work by Farm Bureau members as one reason that the current administration understands that the rule was more about regulating land than water. We're very excited to be able to have the opportunity to comment on rescinding this rule and look forward to working with the administration as they finalize this rule and then move on to step two where they actually look at something that provides a lot more clarity in the future as to what a water the U.S. is. Parrish said the flawed WOTUS rule gave the EPA power to regulate almost anywhere it wanted on the landscape that water might pool or run after a rain shower. I think we all recognize and want to protect clean water, but if you extend jurisdiction to the extent that you're regulating any water on the landscape, regardless of whether it's a stream or not, that's problematic. Congress did not give the EPA authority to regulate land use, and Parrish says it's possible to have clean water without that level of intrusive regulation. Parrish says Farm Bureau grassroots members will stay involved in the rulemaking process through the next steps. We want to see the administration move from withdrawing the rule to step two, where they actually evaluate options for providing clarity and a rule that would work not only with farmers and ranchers, but with states. Chad Smith, Washington. Here's what's happening lately in the world of beef and eggs. California's egg production during May totaled 299 million. That's up 9 million from April's production. That's also up 2 million from May of 2016. The all layers during the month totaled 12.3 million. That's down 1% from last month. 
but up slightly from May of 2016. Eggs per 100 layers during the month were 2,428. That compares to 2,331 a month earlier and 2,412 back in May of 2016. Meanwhile, cattle and calves on feed for the slaughter market in California for feedlots with a capacity of 1,000 or more head totaled 444,000 head on June 1st. The inventory was 4% above from last month and 6% above June 1st, 2016. During May, placements in feedlots totaled 71,000 head. That's 31% above the previous year. Marketings of fed cattle during May totaled 53,000 head, 6% above May of 2016. Other disappearance totaled 3,000 head during May. That's 25% below May of 2016. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Alfalfa fields are making excellent progress and are being irrigated. Corn and sorghum planting for silage was almost completed, but still being cultivated and irrigated. The corn silage crop was in various stages, from newly planted to already producing tassels, and the earliest planted corn was developing ears. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and was growing well. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Peach, nectarine, apricot, and plum harvests are ongoing. Fruit orchards and vineyards were being irrigated. Some apple orchards used overhead cooling systems to mitigate the impact of the heat. Late navel orange harvest is complete for the season. The Valencia orange harvest is continuing. With high temperatures, re-greening in citrus has become more common, and packers were color sorting in order to compensate. Ruby red grapefruit are also being harvested. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in the nut orchards. Pistachios were being fertilized. In some locations, walnut growers applied sunburn preventative materials. In Tulare County, certified producers were picking tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers for sale at the local farmers' markets. Italian squash, eggplant, and cucumbers continue to be harvested. Blueberry and strawberry harvests have slowed a bit. They were expected to come to a close with the hot weather. Sweet corn harvest began with a few roadside stands opening up and sales at the local farmers markets. Carrot harvest has slowed down. In Fresno County, carrot harvest was reaching its end. Pepper harvest was completed with good yields. Dehydrated onions are left to dry. Fresh onion harvest was half completed. Roughly one-third of the onion harvest has been completed. Onion seed is drying out. In Monterey County, the celery harvest is beginning and is picking up. In Imperial County, spring melons and sweet corn are being harvested. Some growers reported exceptional yields. Many farmers were finished with melon harvest and they were plowing the fields. In Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties, tomato crops were progressing, even though the recent heat wave has slowed crop development. Non-irrigated pastures and forbs continue to dry out as the dry days of summer continue. Rangeland was reported to be in good to very poor condition depending on the elevation, aspect, and soil moisture. Foothill watering holes are drying up. Cattle continue to be moved to higher elevation rangeland. Milk production was impacted by the high heat. Livestock deaths increased due to the extended elevated temperatures. Sheep are grazing on retired pasture and dormant alfalfa. The bees were active in melon and vegetable fields. Don't forget, if you miss any portion of the KSTE Farm Hour, you can stream it anytime from the KSTE.com website or the iHeartRadio app. Plus, you can download it at any number of podcast aggregators, including iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a comment. 
Growers of processing tomatoes are waiting to see whether the recent heat wave in California caused extensive damage to a crop that's already diminished because of a global glut of the fruit. The Capitol Press reports that a week or more of triple-digit temperatures in June may have caused flowers to drop off younger plants or sunburned or stunted the growth of more mature fruit. The degree of damage will become more apparent during the harvest later in the summer. Growers are already expected to record their lowest contracted production since 2006. As processors reported earlier this year, they would have contracts for 11.6 million tons, that according to the National Agricultural Statistics Service. Processors expect production this summer will come from 235,000 acres here in California. That's the lowest contracted acreage since 1988 and a 10% decrease from 2016. The Western Farm Press reports that tree fruit growers can receive premiums for delivering certain extra early varieties of peaches. But peach farmers may net roughly $800 more per acre from late harvest processing peaches versus those extra early harvest varieties. That according to a new cost study released by the University of California's Agricultural Issue Center and Cooperative Extension. Although processors pay more for extra early harvested peach varieties than late harvest peaches, researchers found that yields are higher for late harvest varieties, while costs for hand-thinning fruit are lower. Free copies of both the 2017 peach studies are available on the UC Davis Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics website. Sample cost of production studies for many other commodities are also available there. Depending on what part of the country you're in, if your particular region grows blueberries, you may be in the middle of harvest right now. The harvest season for blueberries can start as early as May and run through the late summer based on location. Some may go out to pick low bush or wild blueberries for their home use. Chad Finn of USDA's Agricultural Research Service talks about one of those prime regions of low bush blueberry production. We have a very strong industry in the U.S. and Maine, and then up into the Canadian Maritime Provinces. Those blueberries, while they're sprayed with insecticides and sprayed with herbicides, they were all originally wild. They were never actually planted. And so if you go up to the blueberry barrens in Maine, it is just spectacular, especially late in the season when you have the fruit on there and fall color, and you can see all the variability in the fruit color and size and the colors of the foliage across the barrens. However, if you are a food processing company that uses blueberries as an ingredient for a product, when it comes to low bush or wild blueberries, the challenge is... A lot of variability. So there's some that are ripening a little earlier, some a little later, because they weren't planted clones. These are all seedlings that have been there for thousands of years. Because of that variability, it can be a challenge for processors who want a very uniform product to make things out of. That is why food companies turn to another cultivar of blueberry growing in places like the Pacific Northwest, Michigan, New Jersey, and North Carolina. As far as the highbush blueberry, most of the commercial industry in the U.S. is highbush blueberries, at least as far as the cultivated. However, some highbush blueberry varieties offer their own set of challenges to processors. For instance, larger berries, which as an ingredient in baked goods, could collapse, losing its flavor. That's where Finn and fellow horticultural geneticists work to develop new high-bush varieties that offer value to food companies, such as the recently released and smaller-sized blueberry known as Baby Blues. It's a large bush that's treated like other high-bush blueberries, which is where you get most of your blueberries in the fresh market and probably a major percentage of the processing market as well. Every single Baby Blue bush is going to grow, assuming it's grown well, it's going to look the same and have roughly the same size fruit and roughly the same ripening period, and you can handle it roughly the same way. And so you have much more uniformity when you go to make that product from the baby blues. 
For commercial blueberry growers, baby blues are machine harvestable, increasing efficiencies in their crop production. But Finn notes this new variety can also be used in a home application as well in parts of the country. For a homeowner who doesn't mind picking smaller berries, and these are about half the size of what most people think of as a normal blueberry, if you're willing to pick that, that's great. Or if you're putting it out to bring in the birds or whatever, it's a great berry for that as well. So it's great in the landscaping too. I'm Rod Payne reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We're out here at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington at what is called the Veducation Tent with Chief Veducator Laura Popilski. She's out here showing people all about... Oh, almost gave that quiz away, didn't I? But um, we will tell you, it is not a vegetable, so it's not really a vegetation, is it? But I think fruitication sounds weird. Yeah, it does. And it is a fruit, even though its name suggests a berry. So, Laura, it's quiz time! That's right. See if you can guess what our very important subject is today in 15 seconds. And here are the clues. Paleolithic cave dwellers knew about this thing. It's related to the rose. It has a bunch of, um, uh, what do you call those things? Droplets. Droplets on it, which plastic surgery can correct. It comes in several attractive colors, red being the most popular. You got it yet? Well, time's up. And if you don't have it by now, the final clue ought to send you. <laughs> that was giving somebody a... Raspberry. There you go. Uh, a great food, unfortunately, stuck with a connotation of less than great. For example... Let the rousing begin! Uh, each year they have the Razzie Awards ceremony honoring the worst movies of the year, Golden Raspberry Award. But, Laura, you come here not to razz the raspberry, but to raise it and praise it. You say eh, it's got a lot of vitamin C and fiber in it. There's also research that suggests that the antioxidants in raspberries could be effective against cancer and anti-inflammatory problems. Now, as far as picking or buying the best raspberries, you say uh, it really centers on us knowing just how delicate they are. They don't last long. So... You're looking for ones that are nice and firm and plump, and you really want to be sure that you're not picking up any that look mushy or wet. Which can really happen fast. And um, when we get them home? Mm, you have to be very, very gentle with oh. your raspberries. They're a very delicate fruit. Oh, look at those little things. Oh, aren't so they cute? Big. Oh, yes, but some may be getting soft already. Now, Laura says we need to be eating those right away and preparing the rest for the refrigerator. Getting a really shallow bowl putting a paper towel at the bottom and then putting the raspberries on top of them and do not rinse them until you are about to eat them. And let me tell you how to wash your raspberries so that they don't fall apart. Put them in a colander and submerge them in water and then drain them. Instead of washing them down with the sink hose, you know, they'll smush a lot of them. So you want to be gentle. And they're going to last about two to three days in your fridge. you got to eat them up quick. Or freeze them. Uh, now we're going to stick around here. And next time, Laura's going to give some interesting uses for some of those raspberries. Meanwhile, let's have the razzing, singing fresh fruit seller take us out. The roots see the season, let's be merry. A rose of prayers and the old raspberry. Everything is fresh today. Hey, Laura, want to hear that again? Mm-mm. I didn't think so. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The USDA has declared National Pollinator Week, a time to celebrate pollinators and spread the word about what we all can do to help protect the bees, the birds, the butterflies, the bats, the beetles, all of the critters that pollinate your crops. And sometimes humans step in to act as sort of surrogate pollinators as well. 
We ran into a gentleman at the Calusa Farm Show last February whose firm deals in exactly that. They supply pollen for the bees to take to the trees. Let's hear what he has to say. We actually remove the flowers from each variety of all the different varieties that are available for cherries, apples, almonds, plums, prunes, you know, on and on. You have to have compatibility matching. We gather last year for this year's uh, production. We're always one year out. We take the flowers off the tree, remove the pollen from the anthers. It's processed and dried. Three days it can be reused, but uh, the varieties don't bloom at the correct time. So we collect this year for next year's applications. And we apply 10 grams per acre per day, starting at 20% bloom. And we'll do that on six applications. It's critical to do the 20 to 60% bloom, which is called the king bloom. That's the most vibrant bloom on the tree. And that's when we have uh, not compatibility in the orchard naturally. So the bee will have the pollen at the doorpost of the hive, and it will be on their bodies. It's good for 24 hours. And so everything that, that uh, the flowers that it goes to for those varieties that day will be pollinized one trip out of the hive. And so it's going to increase the production in your fruit sets. And what is critical in the, the fruit set industry is to set the 20 to 60 percent. That's where you get your large sizes. You don't want to set the late bloom. That's the side bloom. That's where you get the small sizes. In almonds, we want to set everything on the tree. And that also strengthens the bees. The bees want to know where they got this gold at. And so they go out and search for it in the, in the orchards. Uh, we're assisting pollinization. The other thing is if it rained last night, it knocked out the bloom that's in the field that day. But if it dries that afternoon and the bees come out in the sunshine, the flowers can receive pollen, but they can't give off pollen for 24 hours. So those days are critical. And so when we're fighting an El Nino weather like we are this year, we can set more crop at the correct times based on nothing happens unless the bees are flying and everything happens at 55 degrees, pollinization will occur. So everything works around what Mother Nature does. We're just assisting Mother Nature. Of all the fruit and nut trees out there, which are the easiest to pollinate this way? Which are the hardest? Well, the plum trees, uh, the bees, for example, don't like to work plums. They'll go work wildflowers and everything else. And so you can artificially blow it on. Uh, you have wastage with it. You have to put carriers on it. Almonds, they love. Almonds are the first crop out. The bees have been cooped up all winter long. So that's why almonds are uh, the highest demand right now for bees because we take two-thirds of the bees in the United States. And so we can take two hives with our product and now produce four without our product because every bee is already got the correct uh, gene match on their body and so we can uh, help in the, in the bee reduction that the problems that they're having right now is they can't supply enough bees for the demand. Furman Pollen Company is the firm. They've been solving pollination problems since 1933. Furman Pollen Company, what a unique way to solve a lot of pollination problems. Thanks for your time, Bob. Thank you. Have a good day. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue is announcing that USDA is awarding loans to help provide broadband service in rural portions of California, Illinois, Iowa, and Texas. USDA's partnerships with more than 500 telecommunications providers across the country fund broadband infrastructure investments that are uniquely designed to meet the specific needs of each rural community. These projects connect residents, businesses, healthcare facilities, and community facilities, and that includes schools, libraries, and first responders to the internet. 
Here in California, Ducor Telephone Company in southern Tulare County is receiving a $9 million USDA loan to construct 67 miles of fiber, as well as updating equipment to improve quality, functionality, and network reliability. With the summer travel season coming up, travelers can do their part to help keep America safe. Safe, that is, from invasive pests. So if you're planning to travel, whether it's between states or to another country, you know, it's pretty simple. Just don't bring back fruits, vegetables, or plants. And don't be shy to speak up if you've made an honest mistake. How many of us have forgotten that orange or that tropical fruit that we put in our backpack for later And all of a sudden, we're heading back to the U.S., and we're on our flight, and my goodness, there it is, you know. That fruit could be infested with something like the Mediterranean fruit fly. It may seem like a hassle, but the precautions are aimed at stopping pests from spreading around the country, where they already cause tens of billions of dollars worth of damage. This is Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at several invasive pests that are on the U.S. government's most wanted list. An average person probably will never see one of our invasive fruit flies. It's just highly unlikely. The most obvious next question to ask Eduardo Verona, who works with the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, would be if you can't see the fruit fly, then how can you even know it's there? If you were to cut the fruit open, you might see the larva infesting the fruit inside. I dare you to try to unsee that image. It's very possible that that piece of foreign fruit or a piece of fruit from Hawaii that you're bringing back to the mainland could have the fruit fly inside as a larva and you not even be aware of it. So, says Verona, when it comes to fruit, don't be fooled by appearances. Just because it looks like it's clean on the outside doesn't mean that it is. Verona works in Florida, which is where many different invasive pests have found they enjoy the climate as much as the humans do. But another one that we're dealing with here in Florida is the giant African snail. Snails may not seem scary, but this one is larger than a common garden snail. It can grow to be nearly as big as a human foot. And of course, the bigger the snail, the bigger the appetite. It can affect up to 500 different plants. It even can scrape the stucco off of the walls. It needs a lime to build its shell. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse... The slime from the snail can actually harbor a parasite that can cause meningitis in humans. The giant African snail is not native to the continental United States, so how did it get here? In the 60s, a little boy went to Hawaii and convinced his grandma to let him come back with a few giant African snails, which he kept in an aquarium. They got tired of them and dumped them into the yard. The giant African snail also may have come to the U.S. mainland by stowing away on a shipping container. Snails seek uh, dark, cooler places to hide, so potentially a giant African snail could get attached to the bottom of a container and make its way over across the sea even. Florida also is ground zero these days for another pest that is wreaking havoc with the state's important citrus crop. It's called the Asian citrus psyllid. It's a little bitty, very, very tiny little insect, as big as a pinhead. That was National Institute of Food and Agriculture Director Sunny Ramaswamy. It's got these mouth parts, not unlike a mosquito's mouth parts, where it can pierce the tissue and into the vascular system of the plant, they start sucking the, the sap. 
But as they're doing that, they have to inject their saliva when they do this. And in the injection of the saliva, they inject a pathogen, a bacteria, into the plant. And that bacteria will multiply inside the plant, and it starts basically blocking the vascular system. And when the plant's vascular system is blocked... The plant cannot get its nutrients to go up and down. And oh, by the way, it produces these toxins that end up going into the orange. And instead of the orange turning orange in color as it's ripening, it turns green. That's why it's called citrus greening. Pictures are worth a thousand words, though. So to see what these and other invasive pests look like, you can go online. On HungryPest.com, which also is available in Spanish. Se puede informar en PlagasHambrientas.com, que también está disponible en español. The website also has information on how to report pest sightings. So next time you see something like insect larvae somewhere you think it shouldn't be, consider getting in touch. This is Stephanie Ho with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Savvy shoppers know that for the most nutritious, best-tasting fruits and vegetables, if you can't grow it yourself, head to a farmer's market. And according to Dan Best of California Certified Farmers Markets here in Sacramento, he really enjoys watching people strolling the aisles and perhaps biting into a piece of fruit they've never had before, like the pluot. With the classic examples, I mean, pluot would be one. True riper fruit is always... Uh, uh, has a lot more flavor, but it's also a highly perishable too, and it's hard to handle. That's why the storage doesn't carry too much of it because it doesn't have a shelf life, and uh, you know it's costly to carry something that's not going to have a long shelf life. But at the farmers market, they can bring it. They can use your field as your storage, and they'll bring it in a fresh, fresh pick from the tree. Uh, when you get into tomatoes, there's a, a low standard for what's vine ripe, but it means it's just starting to turn pink uh, in terms of the uh, commercial uh, channels of trade. Whereas in in the, in the farmers markets, they actually pick off the vine when it's red, and that means it's fully ripe and it has all the good gels in it. And uh, when you cut it in, it has a, a full measure of flavor, and that's you just can't. Uh, ship that kind of tomato or any kind of fruit that's fully ripened because it'll just be smushed by the time it gets to the end. But when the farmers are picking from their fields, sometimes the night before, sometimes the day of, generally the night before because the markets start pretty early as well, though some corn is picked in the morning of the market, uh, it's, yeah, it's only going to travel from the farm to the after it's picked from the farm to the, to the market, whereas in the distribution channels. It could go all the way to L.A. Now, some stores are starting to work with directly with farmers, and we're happy to see that because our purpose is to save farms, not necessarily just to be an outlet for them uh, at a farmer's market. So our purpose is to, to try to get the consuming public to be aware of the nutritional value of fresh fruits and that's supposed to be aware that their farmland is going to disappear unless they support the farmers that, that farm it. And that they know that seed in season is probably what nature expects, you know, expected them to eat. Uh, it has all the vitamin C's, all the vitamin A's that you need during different 
uh, periods of time. So if you eat with the seasons, you especially you're going to shop at a farmer's market because we only bring in what is in season in California, and we're lucky in California to have a, uh, a, a bounty of all the seasons rather than just a, a limited amount. We, don't, we always have some place that's producing something. For more information about California Certified Farmers Markets in Sacramento County, visit the website marketlocations.com. As Uncle Hubert used to say back on the family farm in North Dakota, we use all parts of the pig except the oink. And as an industry, farming has been the very definition of sustainable living since, uh, well, really the beginning of recorded history. But for many now, that's an antiquated concept at best. Well... I have a person I want you to meet. Her name is Elvera DeBridget, and she has authored a new book called Why We Farm, Farmer Stories of Growing Our Food and Sustaining Their Business. She profiles several farms in a farming area quite near us, the Cape Valley. And you, when I say Cape Valley, you may think Indian Casino, but in reality, it is a hotbed for agriculture that is definitely on the resurgence as far as small family farms go. And Elvira, uh, tell us about how you came to write this book. Well, I really just saw how hard the farmers were working when I first moved here. And I just had to know, you know, if it was really worth it, all that hard work, and what were their secrets to success. Now, did you end up at the Cape Valley in order to do farming yourself? Well, I first came to the Cape Valley with the idea of having a retreat center with fresh food, and then I've gotten to know people here by teaching in the community with their children. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Cape Valley because a generation or two ago, it was a hotbed of agriculture, and then it kind of fell by the wayside, and there was a lot of uh, available land back in the 1970s that I think a, a lot of young people saw the opportunity to basically start their own little agricultural empire, if you will. Right. I think it really followed a same historical process that a lot of agricultural areas in the United States have followed, but maybe a little bit on the forefront. There's still you know, some places that have not had the resurgence that we have had here. But still, you talked with many of the farmers in the area, and uh, they, they all have an interesting story to, to tell, and it, it, they really vary in why they're farming, don't they? That's right. There's so many reasons why they farm and how they farm. Well, let's start with uh, one. We're going to profile uh, three farms or so uh, from your book, Why We Farm. And let's start with uh, the small, one of the smaller ones, a 32-acre parcel known as Pasture 42. What's their story? They're really a young couple with very little experience to start out with. And they decided they wanted to go into farming and... They started with chickens and berries, but they soon got into this concept of running a small dairy. And it's just amazing that they've been able to really revive that concept of the small family-run dairy. And, and they have a herd that they, you know, just have grass-fed cows. And they're able to do this by selling to their community through a herd share concept. Um, so they don't sell their dairy to the public directly. You have to sign up with them to own part of a cow, and then you get, can get the milk from that cow. Did you find that concept growing in the Cape Valley? 
It's similar to the community-supported agriculture, CSA movement, where people, you know, are like members and subscribe to a box of vegetables that they get regularly. Talk a bit about uh, what else they're involved with, because uh, they also uh, are growing olives. That's right. They also have, you know, the olives that they planted with their father, and so they do sell olive oil, and they make soap with that olive oil. They're trying to do all kinds of things just to make it work. Um, they sell meat, and they have pigs, and then the eggs. The eggs, of course, are a big seller. More and more farms are coming under the control of women. And you talk to uh, one woman who's a plant breeder. It's Veraditas Farm, and that's 130 acres. And uh, that would be, what, Sally Fox? And she's been at it for about 20 years now. Yeah, I think almost 30 years. She's an amazing person. She's really a scientist. She's an organic plant breeder and just so passionate about trying to grow fibers in a non-toxic way. So she's been developing naturally colored cotton for about 30 years. She saw that, you know, fabric dyes have such a heavy cleanup cost, and she witnessed during her time working as a farmer that the U.S. textile industry, you know, just moved overseas because of those costs for cleanup of dyes, mostly. She's been just kind of single-handedly the force behind creating a market for organic cotton and now really trying to revive the textile industry in the United States with naturally colored cotton that doesn't have to go through a dyeing process. Now, that's an interesting marketing concept in in itself, organic cotton farming. And is she seeing a, a growing demand for organic clothing? Oh, yeah. I mean, when she started out like 25 years ago, there was no demand and people were telling her she couldn't do it. And she actually got, well, not for the organic cotton, but for the colored cotton, she got kicked out of several counties because the other cotton farmers were worried that her cotton was going to mix with you know, and pollinate their white cotton. She's had, she's persevered through so many struggles that, um, that make her story really interesting. Another farm you profile there is one of the more famous organic farms of the Cape Valley. They're famous for their yearly hose down, and that's Full Belly Farm. Right. And they came here in the 70s, like you said, and just started out renting land. Um, Paul Muller, one of the partners there, came from a big family of conventional farmers in Woodland, California. Um, but you know, he really went against the family grain by deciding to start an organic farm. And I think he got a lot of slack from his brothers and family about that. But he, you know, Full Belly became a great success. And they now have, you know, a whole second generation of kids making a living on the farm. But the sacrifices that they made to get to that point were you know, are what really impressed me. And the innovation. They, the partners at Full Belly Farm are always trying some new product to meet, you know, changing market demands. And they're always trying a new method for building soil or conserving resources. Yeah, their innovation really helped move organic farming along. And they're always inviting people to come and learn what they're doing. So it's really become... Uh, sort of a teaching facility, too. 
Well, that brings up another question. In talking with all these various farms in the Cape Valley, which we should point out is nestled along Cache Creek between the Central Valley and the Napa Valley, are you seeing more of a trend to agritourism to help boost their bottom line? Yeah, they've really built some community organizations with that as part of their goals. So there's Cape Valley Vision as one of them. It's, it's kind of slow. One reason is because farmers are so busy. And so to think about having tourists come on their farm is a challenge, even though some of the farms would like the idea. But practically, you know, making it happen is a bit of a challenge. As I mentioned at the beginning, when a lot of people think of the Cape Valley, they think Indian Casino. And the tribe there, the Yokodihi tribe, is actually one of the bigger agricultural entities uh, operating there with something like, what, 9,000 acres of uh, Sika right. Hills Farm and Ranch. That's right, yeah. So here are people who don't need to be farming. They have this income from the casino. But they're staying involved with agriculture as a way to maintain their heritage and also to conserve land and, and to create a beautiful valley that they want to live in. What are they growing there? They have quite a few different things. They're really diverse. They have um, pasture-raised beef and they have almonds and walnuts and wheat and safflower. They also have market their own wine and now they're really focusing on olive oil in the last few years. They built a mill and they have a tasting room there for olive oil and wine. And they're doing something that a lot of small farmers uh, do and that's direct marketing. Yeah, so that is really interesting to see how they're taking, you know, what they used to sell just on the open market, like their nuts, and they've decided, hey, it's worth our time and effort to have our own label and sell it directly to the customer. All right. The name of the book is Why We Farm, Stories from Farmers of the Cape Valley. It's written by Elvira DeBridget. And Elvira, thanks for a few minutes of your time and best of luck with your new book. Thank you so much, Fred. And if people want more information about the book, visit the website whywefarmkpay.com. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.